0: Hi folks, welcome to another edition of British Gangsters. My name is Liam Galvin and I'm here with...
1: Yvette Rowland and it's good to be back.
0: Well, this is part three of Mad Frank and uh, he was interesting, wasn't he?
1: He was a very interesting man and he could remember dates from, almost from the Ark. It was incredible.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's sort of photographic uh, memory. So, um, the first uh, two parts we did we filmed at the Clink Museum uh, which is just on the embankment and in this third part we then travelled from the the Clink over to the Repton Boxing Club and then we went on to uh,
1: the blind beggar from there
0: absolutely and during the journey uh, we questioned him about many things including the train robbery uh, Ronnie Biggs um, what he would like to do now and
1: uh, would he ever take a normal job
0: yes and, and also there's a bit of aggravation with uh, Fred Foreman so he talks all about that and uh, did you enjoy his company in the day
1: um Well, he kept me on my toes, let's put it that way. Uh, He would uh, make sure that he asked me all these questions and I had to know know the right answer about his life history. Uh, And also there was that moment when he asked us um, very politely when we were going to pay him. Even though we just paid him? We just
0: paid him, yeah. We just paid him. That was a bit awkward, wasn't uh, it? That was a bit (laughs) awkward, but uh, he he said it was a bit of a joke. Oh,
1: well, you know, old habits (laughs) die hard and all of that.
0: (laughs) Now, later in the programme, we're going to have a second part as we're going to move on to uh, different characters and we've got a very uh, famous uh, uh, figure in crime, uh, John McVicar, and um, we're going to be talking about John McVicar after we hear from the man himself, Mad Frank. Do you ever have any regrets at all, Frank?
2: Yes, I do. Three regrets... One, I wished I hadn't have been caught. Two, I wished I'd have been on a bigger bank robbery. And three, I wished I'd have been in a great train robbery. But all good fun. At least I did rob the banks, but I wished I'd have robbed the bigger bank.
0: Tell us about the the train robbery.
2: Well, the train robbery, quite rightly, has been described as the crime of the last century, and it was. Brilliant. I should have been in it. But as I was already on the run, the police were vigorously looking for me and I knew that if I'd have gone on the robbery when I was asked to, I could have been in embarrassment to them. In all the work that was being done in setting it up, I could have been recognised and chased by the police and could cause caused a lot of embarrassment. And I had to tell them, Tommy Wisby, who'd asked me, I'm sorry, I couldn't be in it one of the biggest regrets of my life.
0: Tell us about some of the characters that were involved in the Great Train Robbery, like um, Ronnie Biggs.
2: Well, Ronnie Biggs was incredibly lucky in a way. He was only on the Great Train Robbery, because Bruce Reynolds, who knew Ron, the majority of us didn't. I did, because I'd been in prison with him. But he remembers Ron telling him that he had an old pal who used to be a train driver on British Rail and now retired. And he hunted down Ronnie, who was working hard at the time, found him. They found a train driver, a retired train driver, and they took him eventually to where the train, the the mail van train had all the money in, would be shunted into the railway sidings. That couldn't happen now, the sheer security of the things. And they climbed over there and the train driver got in it. He said, yes, I can drive it. All the instruments and that, they started it up late at night, all dark, about 12 at night, 11 at night, no one about at all. But on the day of the robbery, he couldn't start it. And of course that's when I had to get Jack Mills back in, the train driver. And Ronnie and the retired train driver just sat in a Land Rover and took no more part in the robbery whatsoever. But Ronnie couldn't grumble, he got his full whack. Same as everyone else.
0: Would you like to pull off one last big job
2: for yourself? If it was another great train robbery, yes, definitely. I would come out of retirement a bit quick, happily. Do you still get offers of work? Yes, I do. Yes, you'll always get that. But I turn them all down. There's there's been none that I could see any real appeal to me anyway. How do you fill your time now? Well, I do my gangland tours, which are quite frequent. I have to go all over the country at times to talk about my life. And it's great, you know, it gives me an honest living. A lot of people go off about it. Newspapers, one thing or another. But I'm earning money out of crime and I, I just honestly reply, well, I've done 42 years in prison, I've served my, paid my debt back to society and now I'm getting an honest living. Who can grumble about that? And really, that buttons them up, I'm happy to say. What do you think of
0: modern-day sort of hard men um, in comparison to your era?
2: There's no, no race, really, in, in that sense of the word. Most of them, are, they get pretty high on drugs. They get carried away. On the other hand, though, they've got wonderful gymnasiums now where people can keep very, very fit and sensibly fit and all because they can have the proper diet to go with it and all the rest of it. But nevertheless, they're nowhere near as hard as the guys that they used to be. No, definitely not. No race.
0: Who do you think was the hardest man that you you were either in prison with or met?
2: Well, there's been so many, really. It wouldn't be fair, I suppose, to dig anyone out. There's been so many. And it's very hard for me to say which one would be absolutely outstanding, as there have been so many, really.
0: What about people like um, Pretty Boy Shaw?
2: Yes, Roy was very good, Roy Shaw. He was very good. But there are many more similar to him, and I will say, so, yeah. In my time, yeah. What do you th- did you think about Freddie Foreman's recent TV programme when he, when he admitted
0: disposing of bodies for the crows and stuff?
2: Well, if Fred wanted to admit how many bodies he got rid of. Good luck to him, that's his business. But when he said he killed them people and got rid of the bodies, on the craze orders, he shouldn't have said that. Because at that stage, Reggie was still alive. No one knew he was gonna die then. And the authorities were looking for any excuse to keep Reggie in longer. There's a lot of very, very good people were fighting on Reggie's behalf to get him free. And that's all the authorities needed for someone like Fred to say was on their orders when they had been found not guilty of them crimes. So therefore they was completely free of them. But that that really was very foolish of Fred. Very foolish, you shouldn't have said it. What do you think about grasses? Well, what do I think about grasses? I would eliminate all of them if I could. In the world I grew up in, I've been with all my life, they are the, the worst people of all time. For the simple reason, the majority of them are people who's been in prison themselves. So they know what it's all about and they know the rules that they mustn't ever help the police or the authorities in any way at all. So, therefore, they are taboo. You ate them. You've, attacked, I kill them.
0: you've attacked grasses before haven't
2: you? Yes, I have, yeah. Willingly, happily.
0: Have, have you ever thought uh, in, in your life sort of changing to do a, a normal type of job?
2: I am asked in the course of my life would I like to have changed and got a decent job and been an ordinary decent man? I doubt it. Because, who knows, I might have grown up to be this sort of man, where there's a very elderly lady on a road at a request bus stop, when the weather is absolutely very, very bad. Raining really heavily, cold, 7 o'clock in the evening, half seven dark. Bus comes along, she puts her arm out, he sees her, and just drives straight by and splashes over with all the puddles in the roadway. I wouldn't want it to have grown up and been someone like that. I'm glad I grew up to be the guy I am, because there's no way I could do anything like that.
0: Last question here. What are you going to say when you meet your maker?
2: Oh, I've got no worries there. A lot of people ask me, what are you going to say, Frank, when you meet your maker? I have to be honest and say there's no danger of that happening. I've already been booked up. I've got the chief stoker's job down below.
0: So that was Mad Frank. Um, Are you sad to see him go?
1: Anyway, John McVicar.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I remember the moment with uh, when we made this programme. Originally it was supposed to go out on DVD. And we were rather naive. It was our first programme. And we decided to get other people in the programme that... Uh, to
1: give it balance.
0: To give it balance, and, yeah. and who actually criticised him. So not everybody in the programme was saying, well, you know, what a great bloke Frank was. But this was a mistake, wasn't it? It
1: was a very big mistake, yes. Yeah,
0: because when we showed Frank the uh, the version, we'd actually included uh, Dave Courtney, uh, Albert Redding, and uh, various other people who weren't that keen on Frank. Eric
1: and Mason. Eric Mason. Who, who was attacked by Frank, and, and he just gave his son of the story.
0: Yes, uh, Eric Mason who famously got uh, chopped up with an axe by Mad Frank, and and Frank wasn't very happy, was he? I think he threatened to burn our house down.
1: He did, yes.
0: (laughs) But after a while he kind of accepted... That you know, uh, it was kind of good to have a balanced version. So there you go. So I, I enjoyed that experience. That was our first experience with a with a major criminal. And in this um, in this program, we tried to get as many major criminals that we could uh, into it. And and our next guest is of course John McVicker. Tell us your, your memories of John McVicker.
1: Well, John McVicker is very interesting because obviously there was the the movie made about him. Was yeah, it Roger, Roger, Daltrey. Roger Daltrey played music, him? Didn't and, it? Yeah. And great
0: soundtrack with the Who. Loved it. Loved yeah. It.
1: And so um, he's become like a. Brilliant British icon in that sense. Uh, but then he turned into a serious journalist and he married uh, Countess Count- Valentina Artnick.
0: Art- yes, Art- <laughs> is it Art? Runick. Art- Art's Runick. Uh, and they, they had a publishing company. And so, John being a journalist, they had started to put out books, including his, um, his autobiography, McVicar. But very different types of books were going out, not just crime books.
1: Yes, we had uh, The Party Bible by Liz Brewer, who is society hostess to the stars in London. Everybody from Shirley Bassey, Richard Branson, uh, incredible. And then there was also, who Uh, else was there?
0: uh, The Marquess of Bath. And we were trying to remember how we actually got to know uh, John McVicar, but I think it was was through an introduction. (laughs) Now, this is bizarre. It was through an introduction from party hostess Liz Brewer who we had filmed Shirley Bassey's presentation of the Légion Honneur at the French Embassy.
1: As you do. Oh, clang, there goes another name drop. <laughs> but, yeah, so Liz obviously liked our filming, and then when there was a launch of her book and, and other books, uh, she asked us, would we come along and film? I'm sure that was that was how we first yeah, met I'm John. Yeah, I'm sure
0: that was it. Now, what did you think of John? He was, he was very, very private. He, he wouldn't talk about anything uh, related to his past, would he?
1: No, not at all. It... it anything sort of publishing or anything political uh he would talk about or i remember there was a time at the bulgarian embassy and they had a roasting pig didn't they or the pig yes. they were eating that evening he had actually shot in bulgaria <laughs> and brought it back for this this whole event and i remember you asking him did you feel bad yes did yeah. you feel
0: bad about you know shooting the pig and he said no no he said the pig had had his freedom uh he wasn't locked up in prison uh, which was a far worse fate than the pig had had. Um, but we, we also um, went, bizarrely, to Longleat with John McVicar, uh, his wife, Countess Valentina, who herself was a very interesting character. Yep. Uh, so there was the Countess, John McVicar, Yvette and myself, and I think a journalist from the Daily Mail. And A wifelet. A wifelet, <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, what were your memories of going there to um, Longleat?
1: Well, it was really bizarre because um we were shown around. We were the only people at Longley once they shut the doors. Yeah. You you're in this place. It's like Buckingham Palace. Mm-hmm. But I remember the Marcus of Bath um saying to us he had the penthouse. Yes. So so he he was all warm and cozy in the penthouse, yeah. Yeah. but we had to sleep in the main house. Yeah, Which...
0: but weren't we in some uh, rather strange room, were we?
1: Oh, yes, we were in the Karma Sutra room. <laughs> and everywhere you looked, well, the name sort of gives you the clue. Yes. But apparently the weekend before, uh, the Bulgarian uh, ambassador and his wife had stayed there and the ambassador's wife was so upset by what she was viewing yeah. from her suite of rooms that she insisted they leave early.
0: Yeah, I quite like the room myself, actually. <laughs> <It's> not... <laughs> but, you know, it was a bizarre weekend because we spent the time there and it was just a few of us and John has spent most of his time just playing chess with the Marquis of Bath.
1: And then the Marquis of Bath's cousin came over and mm. they had a bit of a row about why he had a smaller estate than <laughs> the Marcus of Bath, and they were cousins, and obviously first-world problems and all of that. Yeah,
0: difficult times for them. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, we then went on, actually, because we used to do shows where we performed a show at Broadmoor later. Yes, we day. did. Later so, that
1: but day. that's
0: another story. So John McVic, a very interesting man, sadly passed away. Um, would love to have got to know him better, but he, there, were, there you was couldn't. no way.
1: Yeah, you just no, couldn't.
0: He did not want to talk anything about his past at all, about a fascinating man. Now, in this uh, interview coming up, this is also part of the uh, Mad Frank programme that we were uh, making at the time. So John doesn't talk about his past, but he talks about uh, Mad Frank and, and the influence uh, Frank had and and how he dealt with the press and how he dealt with all the things when he left prison. Uh, funny things happened on that day, didn't they? When We went up to MacVicar's uh, flat in Battersea, didn't we? Yes,
1: well, we went up to see him and, and he didn't remember. On the way, Liam thought it would be a good idea to call John and just say, look, we're on our way and we've got a... a a very small crew. Anyway, uh, unfortunately, John didn't remember even inviting us, so that was a little <laughs> awkward, wasn't it? And then from there, we all he, tramped in. We we all tramped in. He was very good, actually, he let us in. And then just as we were leaving, <laughs> I said. Uh, could I just use your toilet? Yes, absolutely. Well, then it seemed that the whole crew thought, (laughs) oh, that's a good idea before we go. So there was a queue, this very private man suddenly had about five or six people queuing (laughs) in his small flat for the toilet. It was very embarrassing.
0: (laughs) But I think he forgave us.
1: (laughs) He was open-mouthed, wasn't he? (laughs) He
0: was. God bless him. So this is John McVicar himself. Uh, in this interview, and it's a very uh, interesting interview because it's, it's, it's really, you know, just about his viewpoint of the press and, and uh, how people dealt with it. And, and, uh, and
1: it's a very rare interview because he he, he,
0: did, for interviews.
1: he never he didn't want to do it with us either.
0: <laughs> no, he didn't. I think he was completely surprised. had no idea we were turning up, and uh, <laughs> there you go. But we got to know him quite well, and he's, he's a, a sad loss and a very interesting character. So here he is, Mr John McVicar. Frankie Fraser has
3: become a bit of a media phenomenon over the last few years. Why do you think that is? Because of the overall fact of telling the story of his life. He spanned crime from the old um, razor gangs to the sort of shotgun robbers to to the drug era. Um, So he's a sort of one-man encyclopedia of London crime, which is the sort of gangster side of it um, more than the cops and robbers side of it. He's been much more a kind of heavy than a, a, a predator. <laughs> um,
0: how, how do you think Frank has dealt with this phenomenon? Well, the
3: way he deals with everything, uh, it sort of all washes over him. He has his own view in life, and it's not changed really since he was a child. I suppose what's remarkable about him is that um, he's got this indomitable will uh, that he's allied to a kind of um, criminal code almost, that he follows unflinchingly. And despite the fact that he spent, I think, three quarters of his adult life in prison, and don't forget, in the most horrendous conditions too. I mean, any time he served has been hard time. In that he's always fought the authorities, um, and but he stayed true to these um, what most people would regard as uh, base a base code, uh, a criminal code. But there are some aspects of it, obviously loyalty. Uh, sticking together, that kind of stuff, um, the sort of camaraderie of crime, which crosses any, into any male approach, a culture. Uh, so it's not all about justifying his uh, violence and his, his gangster sort of activities. It's not all about that. But, uh, of course, everyone is... Uh, who he talks about is a kind of victim of the system. Uh, you get that kind of sort of distortion that comes through. But always what's behind it is this person who's uh, fought the system with absolute integrity <laughs> in this bizarre way and survived it. And because people like him are so unusual, uh, it does come through in the man. And there has been a rather weird cult that's built up around him. Uh, And I think the times have been hospitable for that. Uh, In that perhaps, let's say the 60s where he had a long period of counterculture in which certain types of criminal became glamorized, particularly the sort of cops and robbers, the flamboyant. But the 90s, Partly, there was an SAS book stuff in the post-Falklands, and then the first Gulf War produced some SAS stuff. There came a cult of hard men books uh, that really took off in the 90s. And, uh, and Fraser was a sort of hard man villain. Uh, and I think the times were right for this kind of anti-hero to emerge. Uh, And perhaps there was a disillusionment, perhaps all our heroes were being shown to have feet of clay in the the 90s, the royal family got discredited, sport became much more a a drug arena. Pop stars looked more and more a feat. I think there was a sort of disillusionment with uh, politics too. And there was a sort of feeling, well, everyone's a villain, let's let's look to real villains. And Fraser was there, ready made for, 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 for the casting. And uh, he took to it with a vengeance. After all, he'd only recently been shot in the head by one of them, over a, a, an argument over a drug bill. Uh, and this was second time around the block for him. He'd, he was lucky to escape his life then. And in the 60s, in one of the phrases um, that he took part of, he, a gun was put to his head by a chap called Gardner, Billy Gardner, and Frank begged for his life. And Bill spared him and uh, put the gun on his leg, and shot him in the leg. So he's escaped death at least twice through, gun, through guns. And he was in his early seventies then when he got shot outside Terminals. And he packed it in and then took to this one man show that he's uh, sort of drummed up. And I believe it's still going strong.
0: That that shooting outside Terminals, Frank has always said that it uh, it was undercover police. That would be incorrect, would it?
3: Well, I don't think anyone takes seriously Uh, his claim that he was shot by undercover police. He was a spent force at that stage. And thankfully, well, yeah, anyway, we don't have uh, policemen shooting people in the head, except, as we know, in Northern Ireland, it doesn't occur with uh, criminals, particularly spent ones uh, in this country.
0: Um, Was Frank naive in his dealings with the media? Um,
3: You could say that. But that's because he, he, come from, he came from an entirely different type of culture within which he was a, a, a kingpin. Um, he, when he worked since first started working in the media, and I remember advising him on this, that there isn't really a set fee for things like interviews and broadcasts or, or even helping someone with an article or giving them quotes. And particularly with him, uh, you know, it's negotiable. As we all know, it's partly to do with the budget, but there's no idea that it's a set fee. And of course, people using him were just giving him a set fee, and he assumed it was like the cost of, say, buying a packet of cigarettes, you can't really argue about the cost of a packet of cigarettes. It's what it is, and let's buy it or don't buy it, as the case may be. Well, I said to him, no, 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 and he couldn't really understand this. I said, no, you barter. Well, if they say it's a set fee, say, well, I've got a set fee. (laughs) Um, And he rather took to this advice, although I noticed he didn't really want to do the wheeling the dealing himself. He passed it over to his wife, Marilyn, but... um, He thought that he should get his due worth, because in the world he came from, people would be eager, because of his prestige, not to cheat him. In fact, they would want to honour him, you know, so he would always get his just desserts, as it were. But, of course, the media doesn't work like (laughs) that. It works. You have to sort of, um, you know, hold your end up, otherwise you just get trampled on. He was getting trampled on, but I believe that's been corrected. Hopefully, I think it might be, because of the little lecture I gave him.
0: Um, you reviewed Frank's book. What
3: did you think of it? Was it kind of exaggeration? Yeah, I mean, there is. It's a picaresque <laughs> story and you, know, you make allowances for it. Uh, but nevertheless, it's a, it's a very graphic and uh, vivid account of one man's... It just cuts through crime in, in this country in the last 60, 60 years, uh, he, and he, albeit there is exaggeration, that he, he does it with truth, there, there is, it's a wonderful um, uh, antidote to the kind of social science gabble that you see in sort of, particularly industries such as the pr- prison rehabilitation movement, which people dedicate, well, they've got careers doing nonsense, doing nothing. And there's Fraser, who would come out after three months or 30 years. And uh, as soon as he was outside the prison gates, he would just integrate into his life, as it was before he went into prison, without a thought. There was no-one needed to help him cross the road and make a phone call or or understand the the new currency. Uh, It was nonsense. Uh, And so that was one. And the other side was that aspect of his book that was there was a sort of acknowledgement of the the real game of that's played out between the police and the criminal and of course the way in which the courts operate that's that that's also illuminating because it's real yeah there is a realism to his book that uh, i valued certainly when i when, when i reviewed it
0: Um, How do you think the criminal fraternity regard, Frank? Do they think he's a sort of
3: hero, or or is he a failure because he spent so much time in prison? No, because he's fought the system, because he's made himself this uh, sort of champion of the underdog, the criminal underdog. Uh, He's sort of lionized a bit, although the modern era would look at him as a, as a sort of old timer he's sort of out of time, I mean nowadays criminals don't clever criminals don't expect to spend much time in prison mm. and someone who does is kind of inadequate and particularly someone like him who almost embraces it and rebels in prison and makes a career out of that, I mean there is something to what people say is mad about him in that most successful criminals would think he was mad. I, I remember one of the anecdotes that came from one of his um, associates in crime. Um, he uh, was one of the Richardson brothers, and I think it was Edward, the one who's now serving 25 years, and Edward Richardson said, Frank's a lovely feather, fella, but he, he likes trouble more than money. And I always felt that was a very good summary of Fraser. He, he loved trouble and conflict almost more than making money out of crime. And that aspect of him is, is mad. And I think most people would view him as mad.
0: Uh, <laughs> um, do you think that he deserved that title as being the most dangerous man in Britain?
3: Well, he's never been. I mean, he's been a cut-and-thrust man. He's been one of these sort of... Uh, he's uh, he comes from the sort of razor fraternity of the 40s and 50s. He, he was never happy with firearms. And albeit it took a, a while for English crime to count, catch up with its, uh, foreign sort of, its foreign sort of rivals. Nevertheless, guns were going to be integral to crime even in this country albeit we did have an anti-gun culture. And Fraser wasn't really... He's not part of that way of thinking or, indeed, experience. Anyway, he's too old now. But that sort of put him out of the game, really. He wasn't wasn't a gunman. Uh, But certainly, overall, he's probably been the most uh, prolific... uh, Gangster in in the modern era in this country. I mean, it'd be quite extraordinary the number of uh, pies he's had his finger in. Uh, given also that he spent so much time in prison.
0: Um, do you think that uh, Frank is exploiting the suffering of the victims?
3: I think that's a bit silly. With Fraser's concern, Fraser is a service criminal in that he works with other criminals in. In, in, this is where he's, 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 he's worked, as a gangster, you know, he's worked in sort of illegal trades, but providing a service, I mean, you know, if it's protection or drugs or, or gambling or prostitution, I don't think he's ever been involved in prostitution, but these are the areas involved in that that are illegal activities, but the criminal provides these services. He's never been a predatory criminal, a, a bit, I agree, but not very much. He's, he's not really victimized the, um, the man in the street or woman in the street. Uh, so his victims are of his own kind, really. Uh, so it's, it, that, it doesn't make sense that he, I, he's not, uh, and he, uh, whatever you say about him, if he is exploiting it a bit after he has paid his dues. So, again, I, I, I don't have much sympathy with that criticism of him.
0: Um, just a couple more. As, as we've been researching this mentioned, there's been a reluctance of some of the other named criminals to appear alongside Frank. Um, I mean, is this a jealousy in the fraternity, or there seems to be a lot of animosity towards him? I
3: think there's also uh, a lot of jealousy in that... All these, uh, many of these types, of train robbers and people like Foreman and th- there's a variety of these ex-crims who've um, had ghost written books uh, and who've hoped to cash in and haven't. I mean that's the plain fact, it's, it's not a, a bull market, <laughs> uh, this area. Uh, He's come through and made quite a lot of money. And I guess there is a resentment that he can do it. And after all, he does have this remarkable um, oral facility. And again, that comes back from his roots in an oral culture, in in a storytelling culture that you, you, you see in the non-industrial world. We don't see it in, 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 in contemporary Britain. It's very rare. But Fraser comes from that tradition. And of course, crime isn't, All well, the stories about crime, you don't write them down and write books They get you arrested. Uh, and Fraser has them all in his head. And he has this remarkable facility to remember dates and times and dress, and credible recall. So it does make him given a big edge over the other people who are competing for the, this kind of attention after all we, you know we're we now an audio visual culture and so people who can spin off their stories like he can at the top you know at the drop of a hat uh they're valuable assets and he does it very well so he, he he does have some things going for him and of course his stories go back a long long way and he he does know what he's talking about, so he deserves, I think, the um, success he's had. Um, the people who knock him for it are really just sour grapes. Um, and an you may not
0: want to talk about. It. I mean, you you
3: did experience prison with Frank. Is that something that yeah, you don't want to do? That. Okay, fine. Yeah. Uh, how would you? I mean, I can write. I can give you one uh, one lick if you need it for, for a cutaway. Uh, With Fraser, I mean, anyone who's been involved or has written about crime uh, over the last 40, 50 years will will know about Fraser. Uh, And certainly I have known about him and and I've written about him and I've met him a couple of times. But, uh, I mean, he's not someone you take into your <laughs> into your bosom is <laughs> someone that, who you really want to keep at arm's length, I'm afraid. Uh, that's I thought that, that that's
0: enough for you yeah, for us absolutely. Could, yeah. yeah no yeah. that's that's fine. Well, there you go. That's John McVicar, a very, very interesting man. And uh, it's been a slightly longer podcast this time, but very interesting. We wanted to bring different characters and we're going to uh, go probably a little bit more modern uh, next week. And uh, the interview that we're going to do, which will be done in two parts, uh, is with uh, the devil himself, Stephen French. Interesting man
1: very interesting and he really does have a story to tell and some of the things that he describes mm-hmm. there is a moment that he talks about going into a well you describe it well
0: uh, yeah well he was going to um, behead somebody and uh, then he had a kind of epiphany and decided that it would be better if he just pistol whipped him yeah. if i remember but he's um he's an interesting character he's very charismatic um he wants to move on with his life and yeah. and uh, so we did the interview with him uh, last week and um, I think it's going to be a very uh, interesting podcast so we're going to see you uh, next week with that podcast we hope you enjoy it uh, so from me Liam Galvin
1: and me Yvette Roland. we'll uh, see you very soon and it was shot about three metres from me and it
2: fell dead instantly no pain no pain and then it was brought
3: back through Serbia and it really did cost us an arm and a leg to get it through the Serbian border controls so I'm telling you Did you feel any remorse? No, I didn't, no, no. The pig had had a very good life. Never been locked up. That's the main thing where animals are concerned, particularly human ones.